Welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series created specifically for tourism operators. Talking Tourism, the expert series, is the ultimate resource for business owners who want to lift their skills to the next level. If you want to learn how to be a better tourism operator, listen on. Welcome to this special edition of Talking Tourism, a week out from Tasmania's election 2021. Very excited to be joined for this episode by the Tourism Industry Council Tasmania's Chief Executive, Luke Martin. Hey, Luke, this is your third election campaign really different to the previous ones, I'm assuming. Yeah, g'day, Roach. Yeah, no, it's a bit of a pinch for a Gen Y to last in a job where you've actually gone through 10 years, so three state elections. I never would have thought that in a million years, but yes, still, here I am. You're looking just as young as you were uh, 10 years well, ago, Luke, so. if I do yeah, say yeah, so. Yeah, no, it's the, um, it's all their 45s. So. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen me plug that enough on Politicians, social media. Politicians, on the other hand, have aged somewhat yeah. over the course of the journey. It's an interesting time because obviously they call this election, there'd been speculation it was going to happen, but it really did catch a lot of people yeah. on the back foot, didn't it? Yeah, look, I think everyone. Um, you know, journalists, uh, clearly the political parties probably other than the government, if you look at the way they were building up to it. And, and all of us in the, the Tasmanian politics bubble, lobby groups, I think all of us were probably not fully prepared. Certainly from our perspective, we take elections very seriously because you know, the reality of tourism in Tassie is that you've got to have government and industry working off the same page and elections are a critical moment to get that kind of cooperation from both sides of politics or whatever the government that's coming in. So normally we map out a a long process and had one for this election, um, two or three board meetings, we'd workshop ideas and launch the policy ideas and do some research on them. Obviously, the election gets called and, you know, I had a board meeting a week later and we threw the agenda out and said, oh, we're just going to focus on the election wish list and, um, and that's effectively... Uh, very different to what it's been in the past. Okay, we'll have a look at the the policy priorities in a minute. But over the course of the 10 years, just looking back, tourism has changed significantly and the confidence around tourism over the last decade has been significant. What do you attribute that to? It's been interesting. I mean, the other reality is selection's COVID and coming off the back of it. And um, I, I kind of wonder how different it would be if COVID hadn't happened and we were having this election. Look, the, the biggest change I've seen over 10 years is that I think tourism was always seen as a bit of a shiny star on the hill when... You know, it was an important industry for Tasmania. Everyone, I think, supported it, appreciated its value. I think what's happened over the last decade, from my sense, is it's just become a bit all-encompassing in the community and, and it's become part of our culture. Um, when you go into regional communities, I think people don't just see the economic value. They genuinely are interested in the industry for the good and potential some of the risks posed by tourism. And I think that's actually really healthy. We always talk about the fact that Tasmania is a, is a pure visitor economy. We're not just an industry. It's, you know, visitation touches every part of the economy, touches all parts of the community. And uh, with that comes, you know, interests from all over the, over the, over the population. And, and that's been the big change over the decade. How that relates to elections, I think everyone's interested in the industry and, and wants to know that governments are vying for government, how supporting it, but also they're mindful about wanting to manage tourism growth responsibly. So as you say, normally you would have had a strategic rollout of, of your election wish list. Now you've launched some policy priorities. What does the TICT, or what are you demanding, actually happens to ensure that the situation stays the way it is with tourism? Well, that's probably the big change is we, we didn't really actually really even launch it. And I think I've had a few people ring me out going, how can you not drop in your wish list? Whereas even journalists have said, no, no, that's not what we've done this time. We we came up with some priorities as a board. You've got to remember the TRST board's 24 members. So it's highly representative of the industry. And we workshopped um, what we felt were our four or five key areas. We simply provided it to the two major parties, knowing that they were 
formulating tourism policies. And what we had confidence in from both sides is that our priorities weren't going to be much different to theirs. And that, to me, has been, again, a really positive thing. It wasn't like we are going to put up radical ideas that they weren't aware of. People who know our industry and people who follow it, and, and whether it's the government who's obviously been heavily invested in tourism or indeed the opposition, Rebecca White's our shadow minister, she knows what our priorities are as, as much as we do. So, you know, when we put our priorities up, tourism marketing dollars, more money for our parks infrastructure, a really strategic approach to working out of COVID through T21, our, our economy action plan, that wasn't any surprises to them. And, and sure enough, when you look at what they're committing now and they're their own policies, um, it's highly reflective. We'll go into both of the major parties' policies in a bit more detail shortly, but tell me about how important that marketing dollar is to have that secure for the long term. We've we've seen the New Zealand campaign, how mm. important that's been and how effective the marketing is, how the, the come down for air, the new winter campaign that's just been launched yep. by Tourism Taz, imperative to have that marketing money. Yeah, and, and we always are competing off a lower base than the other states um, simply because of size. There is an absolute arms race in Australian tourism happening right now. Uh, every state government is dealing with um, d- distressed tourism industries. Their answer is to throw more money at marketing. Tourism Australia is throwing more money at the federal government. So you've got this huge bucket of money circulating, trying to encourage Australians to travel to different parts of the country. Tassie needs to hold its own in that context. And one of the things that's happened over the last decade is that uh, our tourism marketing budget, effectively, has grown significantly. That's been a positive thing the government's done. And that was largely Will Hodgman and, and over his period. And yeah, because they saw that you know, if you spend a million dollars on driving interstate visitation out of WA when you launch the flight, the flight will sustain. Um, if you're going to attack, uh, attack the winter months um, around Dark Mofo, you put marketing dollars to promote that, you see a return back to the economy. So, you know, our marketing budget's about $30, $30 million at the moment, which is still the lowest in the country, still nowhere near what New Zealand's obviously throwing at the market or what even Queensland or South Australia throwing at the market. But it's enough for us, we think. The issue for us around the marketing budget is keeping that at that level. And um, obviously in the context of um, the budget, when you've got you know, housing, health, education, roads, you know, obviously it's it's not front of mind for most punters to think about tourism marketing dollars. So I guess we just, uh, we just try and run the argument that um, it's one area of tourism expenditure that governments do that we know has a direct economic return to the state. And another priority you've mentioned is parks. Uh, some of the parks perhaps have been neglected over the course of recent history. And I know just after COVID, we all... Every person in the north of Tasmania flocked to see Liffey Falls and yep. I was really surprised that there just hadn't been any infrastructure upgrades there for what looked like a long, long time. Yep. How important is that basic spending at, at those levels? Well, I've always referred to parks infrastructure as the pimple on the backside of to the Tasmanian government priority list. It's the last thing Get they... Get some clearer sell yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's literally the last thing that governments over many generations, over many decades have spent on and... and that has changed. And you talk about um, one of the positive changes of the last decade. People now view our national parks not as these locked up reserves that are unproductive for our economy and, you know, lock it up and, and, and you know, shut down another industry. I think people now look at some of these national parks and reserves as actual economic linchpins for their local community. You know, there's no tourism industry um, without Mount Field in the Doom Valley. There's no tourism industry in the far south of our Cockle Creek and Hastings Caves. You can go on and on and on. And the beauty of our parks is that they're in every corner of the state. So investing in that infrastructure is actually good economic sense. It's also about managing that uh, visitor activity that's sustainable. And I think everyone who knows their beloved park around the state, every tourism operator who you know has a connection to a particular site, will know that there are priorities everywhere. And, and you know, I think, again, waving the flag for parks both the conservation management side of it, but also the visitor infrastructure side of it. It's um, something that's you know, 
front of, front of mind for us and obviously it's responsible for us to keep pushing for. And I suppose it's a cliche, but the crown jewel of Tasmanian park infrastructure is probably Cradle Mountain. Yeah. How important um, was that in the policy priorities for you to see the progression of big ticket items like what we need to see or what has been mooted for Cradle Mountain? Yeah, so so some about a decade, seven or eight years ago, uh, the industry with government, um, partnership with government, sort of identified that the two absolute jewels in the crown are Freystay and Cradle, and they are absolutely fundamentally important to the broader visitor economy in the north. Cradle is this amazing asset we know as a national park. It's one of the most extraordinary sites on the planet, but it's also strategically the most perfectly located tourist attraction in northern Tasmania because people go through Lonnie, they go through the northwest, they go onto the west coast. So what we had at Cradle Mountain, frankly, was a disgrace. Um, up until a few years ago, it was a, it was a, just a neglected jewel that had, um, you know, a tin shed visitor centre, no decent amenities at the lake, um, an ugly car park, um, and then a, a, a transport service that was, you know, minimalistly sustainable in terms of being safe and, and be able to cope with visitor numbers. So the Cradle Mountain Master Plan, which isn't just touching that up, it's actually doing something that's quite extraordinary. So we're halfway there. The visitor centre is obviously open. I was up there on the weekend. It does and look amazing. It does work and it's working. Um, and again, if you are someone who's come to this jewel of the crown at Cradle Mountain, your first experience when you arrive used to be this tin shed visitor <laughs> centre in an ugly car park. You'd think, where the hell am I? Is this the jewel that everyone talks about? Well, now they rock up and they see a, a, a facility that does justice to the park and creates a sense of expectation and, importantly, manages the numbers through. The cableway is a critical part of it. And is it going to happen? Well, that's what we want to see in the election. Look, from that, we understand the last four years, they've looked, 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 as we have done for about 20 years as a state, what is the best way to manage the visitor numbers into the park and, by far and away, the most environmentally sustainable way is a cableway. It's also the most expensive. And there's two options we have. One is to effectively upgrade a road. That means digging vegetation in the World Heritage Area. Or we can be bold and do something that's, you know, again, people are going to have concerns about on some levels. Um, there's a whole lot of challenges to work through it, but you can end up with something that is globally unique and um, does justice to it. So Cradle's still number one priority. We know from the economic modelling, if that master plan's completed, not only does it set Cradle up to be done properly for the next 30 years, It'll also become a, the absolute moaner of the north, and that's the, that's unashamedly the language we use because it will become that must-do nature tourism experience in Northern Tas. And Freysnay, is it at risk of being loved to death? Well, that's Freysnay is the exact same story. I mean, anyone who's been to Freysnay, if you're a tourist, you're a, lo a local, you know, it's that road driving into the park is just not tolerable any longer. We just need to do better than that. And again, the master plan Freysnay, very much like Cradle, pull the visitor infrastructure out, pull the car parking out of the park set it up in the close to the town, get out of the way and don't affect people's amenity once they're there, and then have an appropriate transport solution through buses or, or, or sea transport. The reality is, though, these cost a lot of money. You can't do this by halves. So why you need an election is because governments need to put it on the table and say this is one of our game-changing economic opportunities for these regions, and, and that's why we they're front of mind for us. So we're less than a week out from... A really big election. It's been an interesting campaign, that's for sure. How are you seeing the Labor versus the Liberal policies as they've been rolled out over the course of the last few weeks? Yeah, so, well, Labor dropped theirs about a week ago up in Devonport. As I say, no, no real surprises for us because Rebecca's been our Shadow Minister for a long time now and, and she's had a Marina Industry Advisory Group. She's obviously someone who's got a tourism background, so she knows the industry and had ex high expectations. And when you look at her policy, there's... There's certainly she's picked uh, the eyes out of what we were calling for. There's, she's committed to the tourism marketing dollars. 
There's a significant investment package for parks. Uh, she's earmarked uh, investment in some of those priorities that we've suggested, like Cradle, Freysnay. Uh, mentioned the Utah Stadium, which is so incredibly important for Launceston as its events uh, infrastructure to the upgrade of Utahs, and particularly, I think, the indoor st- component, which Lonnie desperately needs for its events um, to take off. So she's picked all that out, but she's also got some of her own ideas uh, as well around um, uh, particularly Heritage Rail. There's a bucket of money for contingency funding for in case we have another version of a lockdown or, or something happens in the next 12 months that we, uh, we're perhaps not out of the woods as much as we thought we would. So... Um, yeah, look, Labor's policy is great. The Liberal Party announced theirs, I think, today. They've been drip-feeding it, slightly different approach. Premier was up at Freysnay announcing funding for the, the master plan, which has exceeded what we're expecting on that front. Um, they've made similar commitments around parks infrastructure across the state, and they've also picked some particular regional priorities, um, $2 million for the Don River Railway, which is something that Devonport's been screaming for for probably a generation um, to actually get that asset to a proper level as a real must-do tourist attraction for Northwest Taz. So, look, both parties have done a good job. And, um, you know, again, I think whatever way the election results, whoever wins, uh, I think tourism operators can be pretty confident we're going to have a pretty strategic and, um, and clear blueprint from the, the incumbent government about what they're going to do in, for industry in the next few years. And it's interesting to to read the headlines and, and look at the perhaps internal polling that's going on and what the predictions are for whether or not the Liberals will maintain a majority government or not. Yeah. Greens possibly going to come into play a little bit more over the course of the next few years, do you think? Uh, look, we'll see. I mean, clearly the independents and the Greens, they're a feature in this campaign, as they always are in our hair clerk system. Um, I think the independents is obviously a factor, particularly in Hobart. I think probably people in the north are going, scratching their heads, going, what's the big fuss? But, uh, <laughs> Craig Garland's got a lot to say, I noticed. But um, in Hobart, that's clearly a consideration. And the nature of our system, you know, when I try to explain to my colleagues interstate, as I think all Tasmanians do who follow politics and try to describe to a, someone in Queensland and say that we might have an election result where one party gets 52% of the vote and one party gets 38% of the vote, but it'll probably be one seat that decides it. Yep. And there, they, you know, in any other state, that would be massive landslides. That's the nature of Air Clark. So you've got to work under that. Um, awareness that we've got independence. From our perspective, I mean, to my mind, we'll play the issues on their merit. You know, the independents haven't had a lot to say about tourism so far. I think we can say the most likely result would be that Sue Hickey or Christy Johnson wins a seat in Glinton Tarrybart. We pretty... will get light rail in the northern suburbs. I, I think if Christy gets up, <laughs> uh, hook or by crook, there will be a clear agenda, which to me is a potentially exciting for tourism. So, And Sue's always been pretty positive about the industry, so I'm, I'm not worried about that. Yeah. The, the Greens. Greens, yeah, look, look, the Greens, um, <laughs> look, it's a challenge to the Greens to say, I, I think it's a tragedy that the Greens have an adversarial approach to tourism because I very much follow the history of tourism in Tasmania and the Greens were the great champions of the industry. Christine Milne's regarded as the great tourism minister that Tasmania never had and um, people who know the industry well will give credit where that is. It's just a challenge at the moment, I think, with the politics as it is um, around some of the you know, the issues that we've got on the table, you know, I guess some of their desirability around, you know, putting their conservation agenda and, and I respect where they're coming from, but it is just a challenge to try and get uh, on the same page with them at the moment. And Well, let's talk about some of the environmental issues then that do have a, a flow on effect to tourism. And one that I want to mention is uh, obviously the very controversial Lake Malbina yep. development, um, very vocal group of people who have rallied a very strong group who yeah. are opposed and very happy to say what they think to whoever, yeah. whether they want to hear it or not. Is that still something you support in the current climate? I know that it was a really great idea back when it was announced under Hodgman to open up parks to tourism development that was sensitive. Yeah. 
in the current climate, is it still a safe thing as far as you're concerned? Look, I mean, the EOI policies, which gets a lot of traction and, and people, I think the reality is the EOI policy, I don't think most people actually understand what it is and what it's not. I think it's just become a bit of a buzzword for general concerns that people have for nature tourism and obviously tourism in protected areas. And totally respect where conservation groups are coming from. They bought their lives to protect these areas and they are ultra sensitive about anything that goes on in them. At the same time, we would argue um, that commercial tourism has a net benefit to these areas. You get more people into them, they understand, they respect, they appreciate them. And the reality is you're getting a market of people who otherwise wouldn't see them. Um, you know, not everyone has the capacity to walk, hike seven days into the into the Great Western Tiers or into the Southwest, which you know they need they need a different level of service that private operators can provide that no one else can. So, look, the EOI policy, to, um, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a red herring. The reality is with Malbina or any project that's going through those proposals at the moment, they need to be tested against law. And there's the RAA process. Uh, there is the National um, EPBC Act. Um, the Australian government's doing a review of Malbina as we speak. And so it's not really, unless you want to change the law, um, and a party's proposing to do that, the reality is there's a pretty set set of rules around anything that goes on these areas. And... Um, and, you know, they need to be respected. And with, you know, these projects that are being mooted, some of them we love, some of them we think would be iconic products Tasmania, some of them that have been proposed, you know, leave people scratching their heads <coughs> in the tourism industry, where'd they come from? The OI policy was about getting them on the table, actually understanding what was being proposed, and then, the you know, allow the legislative process around what's appropriate and the science about what should go on in these areas to, to run its course. Yeah, so the jury's still out with Lake Malbina from a, a federal government uh, approval perspective, so perhaps not an election issue. One that I'm intrigued about, it's coming late to the, to the party, is the issue with salmon farming yeah. and um, Richard Flanagan's uh, new book. Is that going to have an impact on the election campaign um, at this late stage? Look, I, th I think the salmon, uh, people who are con deeply concerned about salmon and Richard, probably his timing is pretty obvious. It's they, they want it to be an election issue. Whether it will or not, I think Drew's out. Look, from our perspective, we respect the salmon industry. It's, it is the major employer in many of the same communities that tourism is a major part of, and, you know, the West Coast being the obvious example. At the same time, though, we felt, I know, there are a lot of operators and a lot of members of the community who share the concerns that are being expressed. So, you know, it is one of those issues where you've kind of got to recognise that there is a diversity of views, respect the industry for the role it plays in the community, respect the regulation, and if, if there is evidence, you know, from Richard's book or any of the other science or the advocates put forward, you know, obviously it's responsibility of government to, to be able to work through them as regulators and you know, obviously, it's, you know, through the, the, the processes they have. So, look, it's, it's obviously clearly time to be an election issue. It's not one we'd probably buy into. One of the perhaps most contentious issues of the entire campaign and, and one that probably really puts Labor and Liberal at odds with one another is the issue of TAFE. Yeah. That's a big part of the tourism industry for, for teaching its new and upcoming uh, hospitality um, and all the other elements that come with tourism. Yeah. Does TICT have a view on that? Yeah, well, look, as an industry, so TAFE's been, or Drysdale, as we, we've, um, the Tourism Institute, Drysdale's probably been the most frustrating issue as an industry we've had over the last three or four years. We've constructively tried to work with government and with TAFE around trying to you know, get Drysdale back to where it was. Drysdale used to be the premier tourism hospitality training school in the country. So many people wanted to get back to that in the industry, including us. And, you know, the reality is went for a piece of work that came up the model to reform Drysdale's governance which didn't get anywhere um, with government at the last straw, fell over, mainly because of the pushback. 
the irony is that the Liberal Party's policy effectively is taking the model we put up and put it across the entire organisation. So we're sort of sit looking there now going, all oh, right, okay, so we perhaps weren't far off the mark. I also understand purely where Labor's coming from around the need for this not be just about a governance issue, about whether it's a GBE or privatised, whatever they're saying. It's actually about funding and training outcomes. Look, from our perspective, what we want is a really responsive, commercially driven training body because ultimately that's what our employers are. And some of the anecdotes you get about the training coming out of TASTAFE from our sector over the last few years has been quite alarming. Um, you know, training's not done during the middle of summer when most of the employers have their staff loaded up because it's, you know, they're on teachers', teachers time, um, not, not on, you know, industry time, not doing after-hours training um, when restaurants, that's when they've got their staff on. The, the dropout rate's been appalling. It is just not what we want. So, we, you know, if we want to be a world-class tourism industry, we need a world-class training sector. And um, and hopefully that's what Drysdale can be again. You know, again, we've got two very compelling alternate views, which is really healthy, I think. Ultimately, whatever way the government falls after the election, we'll, um, we'll see if they can achieve those outcomes and make, ultimately make a difference for our kids and who want to want a career in our industry and the employers that need to employ them. But the status quo is, is no-go. Oh, look, everyone knows Drysdale. Look, I, I cannot... I cannot believe, and I just find it galling to read that people defend the status quo. It's not acceptable. And so, so as I say, Labor's answer, it's a funding issue, probably 90% right. They ne- it needs more money. Everything needs more money. And surely funding would lead to better outcomes. The Libs' position is that you change the governance. Um, I think that's also probably right. So if we can perhaps get the combination of the two, get a re- new restructured governance model plus more funding, yep. um, you might end up ultimately getting the best out for both. It sounds that like that's the case. And one thing that I, I do know that the tourism industry has loved is having the Premier as the tourism minister. And I yep. remember um, introducing Will Hodgman to the Tourism Awards as the Minister for Good Times and yep. that got a bit of a laugh. And poor old uh, Premier Gutwin, yep. not so much good times since he's taken over. How important is that, though, for the Minister for Tourism to uh, be the Premier? I would die in a ditch over it, Rachel. It is the number <laughs> one It is the number one thing. I, I, I mean, people, people, you know, again, unless you actually live this stuff, um, tourism is not a siloed industry. It touches every part of our industry, um, every part of government. And no, uh, Will Hodgman had a great time, um, a lot of great tourism awards, but he also delivered for us. He also broke down silos, and that's only what he could do as tourism minister. The only other time we had it as an industry was when Jim Bacon was premier as well. So it works. You know, Peter, he was, you know, it didn't turn out the way we expected in the first 12 months, but again, when it mattered, because he was treasurer, because he was tourism minister and he was premier, he absolutely delivered. And even during those, you know, really bloody awful decisions he had to make, and, you know, when he rang me and told me he was going to shut the borders, I, you know, I, I literally, you know, I, no, no, I was <laughs> close to tears. Well, he was, I think he was close to tears was a problem. So, you know, to make those decisions as tourism minister, knowing the impact that would have on our industry, but at the end of the day, a week later, he's delivering results for the industry around funding. That would only happen at that pace because the premier is who, who it is. So, you know, my hope is that uh, whoever the, whatever the election result is, um, the Premier is the Minister, and yes, we go back to having more the, pre- the Minister for good times. Um, and uh, <laughs> and know, my understanding is that Beck White has said she would take on that role. And they both have indicated that way. Certainly Beck's very firm on it. She gets it. And Peter, I mean, again, wait to see what the election result says, but he certainly indicated that he wants to. And frankly, from his perspective, I think he deserves to have a couple of good years where some of these, you know, he saved businesses. The state government saved businesses who will now be re-employing people. We're going to have the spirits come on in two years. Uh, we're going to have some of these major projects open up. So if he does happen to continue as Premier, 
I think he deserves a bit of a deserves to be a few of those uh, ribbon cutting out moments when those things actually come come good. And just finally, as well with the tourism, the new market that we've got with New Zealand coming on board, seeing that literally the All Black yep. arriving uh, at Hobart Airport, um, and we've got an interview coming up on a on a future talking tourism podcast with the new CEO Norris Carter in coming weeks. How important is that market to continue on with post-election um, yep. into the future and, and perhaps even getting Will Hodgman over in Asia to, to get some more Asian markets to come through? Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, you just simply look at the mass. Uh, when we got a direct flight to Brisbane, the visitor numbers doubled. When we got a direct flight to Adelaide, the visitor numbers doubled. Uh, Perth doubled. Um, so my expectation is that you know, we are working off two flights a week. It is absolute small numbers. So it is a, a low, small conservative start that we need to build up. But... Hopefully, over the next six to 12 months, as normality returns to travel, that direct flight will become a daily thing and New Zealand numbers will go from hovering around the 17,000 mark, which is you know, not much in the scheme of how many New Zealanders come to Australia. Um, we can get that up to 40,000, 50,000 mark. Long-term long lens, you know, I'd love to see Auckland be a really competitive market. We have a couple of carriers flying to Hobart, potentially even Launceston, maybe maybe the South Island route again, Christchurch. Um and you're right, um, Singapore would, would should be the next aspiration. And if we can have, to my mind, in 10 years' time, if you can say that you've got a couple of carriers flying to Perth, where there's obviously the now the hub for Europe, got a couple of uh, a carrier flying directly into Singapore or Hong Kong with the connections into Asia, and then we've got the connections into Auckland as onto the US, you'd think that would put Tasmania in a pretty strong place for, yeah. the, for the future. Hopefully a positive to come out of oh. what has been a horrible COVID situation. Just finally, Luke, obviously we said at the start, this is your third campaign. Are yeah. you going to be hanging around for a fourth? <laughs> no, this will be the last one, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I think you promised that last uh, time. I probably <laughs> did, I think. Well, yeah, no, it's been, it's been, look, it's, it's, yeah, no, I don't think we'll do a fourth. I think the Tower State Board will be um, putting on. There'll be a lot of listeners probably going, oh, God, is he still there? Um, uh, no, look, it's been good. Uh, look, the beauty of this the industry, you know, it's been a joy the last seven or eight years to be part of seeing the extraordinary growth, but the last two years has also been incredibly, you know, rewarding because, uh, you know, the resilience of our businesses to come back, you know, the, the fact that we went from being 100 miles an hour, absolutely top of the world, literally at National Tourism Awards again, cleaning up, to a week later having our industry turned off. You know, it's just extraordinary. And and what the industry's gone through the last 12 to 18 months. And, you know, I was up a cradle on the weekend and you know, operator told me it was his busiest April in 20 years. It's been a it's been an amazing journey. Um, the elections are, you know, fitting, as I say, whatever way you vote, um, vote for one of the two major parties with confidence to know that you're um, you're going to get a great tourism policy. That's the main game for us as an industry body. We, we just want to get that outcomes and, and get on with it. Wonderful. Looking forward to seeing what the next 12 months brings, that's for <laughs> sure. Lovely. Thank you so much for your time today, Luke Martin, the Chief Executive of the Tourism Industry Council, Tasmania, in this special episode of Talking Tourism. If you've enjoyed it, please do uh, take a look at the TICT's website. There's plenty of previous episodes of Talking Tourism across the whole gamut of the tourism industry. We'd love for you to take a listen to those. I'm Rachel Williams. Thanks for your time. See you later. You've been listening to Talking Tourism, brought to you by Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. For show notes, other materials and episodes, head to tict.com.au. Be sure to come back every fortnight for a new instalment of Talking Tourism.